It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. We're gearing up for our next season to begin. Season 13, to be exact. That's right. And all season long, we'll be looking at past awards categories and discussing the nominated films. We're kicking off our new season with a series looking at the 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominees. But back in season five, we discussed six of the ten nominees. Because of that, we're releasing those episodes now so that you can get ready for this series. That's right. We're going to release those episodes from 2015 and 2016, in which we discuss Gone with the Wind, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ninochka, Stagecoach, and The Wizard of Oz. And to top it off, we'll be streamlining those older episodes a bit so they're just focusing on the films themselves. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Uh, shall we tell the people where we're from today? Where are we from, Pete? Pete. <laughs> 
the next reel. Uh, my name is Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello, hello. And we spoil the movies. Tonight on the show, the first in our series of the great films of 1939 with Victor Fleming's film Gone with the Wind. Pete. Yeah? I don't think I will kiss you, although you need kissing badly. That's what's wrong with you. You should be kissed, and often by someone who knows how. Gone with the Wind has captured the imagination and acclaim of the entire world. The screen has never known a love story to compare with this. When Rhett Butler meets Scarlett O'Hara. I love you more than I've ever loved any woman. And I've waited longer for you than I've ever waited for any woman. Let me alone! Kiss me once. Can't we ever forget that day at Twelve Oaks? Do you think I could ever forget it? Have you forgotten it? Can you honestly say you don't love me? No, I... I don't love you. It's a lie. Well, even if it is a lie, do you think I'd go off and leave Melanie and the baby? I'm not cornered. And you'll never corner me, Red Butler, or frighten me. You've lived in dirt so long, you can't understand anything else. And you're jealous of something you can't understand. A love affair you'll remember as long as you live. Filled with all the fire and fury of the times in which it happened. Gone with the wind. First picture to win ten Academy Awards. The most honored, the most talked about motion picture in all film history. Gone with the Wind, Andy, 1939. We're starting off with what a, what a timely film. This, I, I don't <laughs> think we could have picked a better time to discuss this film. Oh my goodness. Uh, this film was, I think it was difficult to get this film made for a number of reasons, but... Uh, which I'm sure we will we will talk about, but uh, that goes to the number of people who are involved in its creation, just in terms of the the credited and uncredited uh, talent behind it. Victor Fleming, uh, credited as a director, uncredited George Cukor and Sam Wood, writing credits obviously based on the book by Margaret Mitchell, uh, which was of the time. Uh, screenplay, original screenplay by Sidney Howard with other hands in it from uh, uh, Oliver Garrett, Ben Hecht, Joe Swirling, and John Van Druten. Uh, uh, not, uh, that, that does not to discount David O. Selznick, uh, who also had his <laughs> fingers heavily, heavily, heavily in this film. Uh, stars Vivian Lee as, as Scarlett O'Hara, and uh, of course, Clark Gable. As uh, as Rhett Butler, to name a few, <laughs> to name just just two of, of like ten thousand people who are in this film. How did it hold up for you on this viewing? And and I I have really been struggling with how to talk about this movie, Andy. So I I sort of feel like we need to start with that um, because this movie celebrates and and is so wildly tone deaf. Um. To so many of the social issues, which frankly they should have been less tone deaf about, even at the time, uh, it is wildly dated and uh, a, a challenge to watch in that light for me. So, what what is your sense of how you you approach watching this film? Yeah, yes, <clears throat> I I agree with you completely. This is a it's a very challenging film to watch. I do like this film. I, I quite enjoy it. I find it a very interesting story. I really enjoy the characters in it. I enjoy all the things that it's saying outside of uh, the issues that we're and going to talk about here shortly. But I like that it's it's there's this element of 
of you know these self this self reliant woman. There's this um, look at love and kind of just the the way that love works and this this fickle nature of it and this jealousy and the rivalry and this importance of land. I I think there's a lot of really interesting things going on in the story. It is a very long movie. I mean, it's it's a solid four hours pretty much when you have the overture and the intermission and the end music and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's a it's definitely a hefty thing to sit down and watch. Um, and this time it, it took me a little bit to get into it. Um, I find myself, well, I shouldn't say that I, it's, it's pretty easy to get into it. Then I hit the middle and it kind of, it takes a little longer for me to kind of get through the whole middle part. And then I really get into it again in the ending. And I really get drawn into the characters to the point where I, I'm really kind of touched by some of the things that are happening toward the end of the story. It really, um, does work on that, uh, level, but it's hard in today's, uh, age to not look at everything else that's going on in this film and just be cognizant of how wildly inappropriate some of it is and uh, uh, kind of just painful to watch a lot of that. And it's it's one of those films that I find myself watching uh, and just kind of balancing that line of watching it as, uh, you know, as somebody just enjoying those elements of the story with all of the things that it's just like, gosh, it's, it's hard to watch that now. And I always find it interesting. One of the things that I always start thinking about is the studios that release these movies, um, that continue to release them despite some of the, uh, the downfalls of them now, like, um, like this or Peter Pan that, uh, the Disney film, which has some horribly racist, uh, Native American stereotypes. Um, and I find it interesting when films like Song of the South are the ones that are talked about or Birth of the Nation. That, oh, well, you can't watch that. That's a film to look at, maybe, and just to analyze kind of the, what, what it's about. But you don't want to actually go watch it and enjoy it. But then there are these films that are so widely praised, like this and Peter Pan, that people just kind of tend to gloss over that stuff. And it's such a strange thing that kind of bothers me. It, it, I totally agree with you. I think that, for me, got in the way of watching this film this time. My my experience with the film was, you know, this, how, how do we allow this film because of, of what it is? We cannot, we cannot truly, uh, uh, you know, let appreciation for, for the fantasy that is Gone with the Wind uh, get in the way of what the film is actually doing, which is glossing over uh, a history, trying to repaint history as something that it was it, that is is so so far from what we what we know to be the truth. Um, but part of what this film is for me is a, it is a work of art, and you know, as we were talking about the the you know ten most controversial films. You know, that we were talking about at the beginning of the show, uh, I sort of feel like this film fits in with that. It doesn't have any uh, overt uh, sexuality. It doesn't have any human centipedes in it. As far as I could tell, maybe that was during the overture and I was fast forwarding through it. But the uh, what this film represents is a, is a celebration of the lost cause movement of the South. And and it is uh, this romantic romanticization romantic. What's the word? Romanticization. Romanticization. Too many sounds. Romanticization of this, this, uh, the fable. And if we look at it as, as a fable and move and are somehow able to move past the fact that it is completely 
racially tone deaf. The foundation of the film is built on something that is that that you have to discount. And you, if you can just appreciate it for the colors and the art and the fact that it's a four hour um, bit of visual beauty, then I, I think maybe you can start to have a conversation about it. I don't like the film. I don't like how it makes me feel when I'm watching it because I am so aware of of, uh, you know, what it does culturally of what it's hiding and what it purports to do uh, to, you know, to people who who haven't, you know, who, who don't know what was going on or, or choose to to believe that this is this romantic view is is history of the South. And so that I find really frustrating uh, to watch. But. At the time, right? I mean, we're dealing with 1939 or the 30s. We're dealing with, you know, uh, we're in a war footing. Uh, and Hollywood had this romantic notion that they were to uh, celebrate and help people forget how hard it is. To, you know, how hard it is uh, moving through the Depression, how hard it is um, dealing with the war, how hard it is. Uh, living in this country at the time. And that was as uh, that that seems to have been sort of a cultural duty. And this film is as escapist as you can get. Yeah, it definitely was uh, very escapist. And I mean, it's, you know, they were, this was done in a period of time when there were probably still people from the uh, Civil War who were alive. You know, it wasn't that far set from then, you know. And, uh, I mean, I guess what, I guess 60 years Right. Yeah. 40, 60 or 80 years, maybe. So, I mean, they'd, they'd be awfully old. But I mean, there were some people I'm guessing that were still around. It's, it was much fresher it's, in it, their minds. Certainly generationally. I mean, you know, it, it, we're certainly looking at, you know, kids of uh, the Civil War, that first generation of yeah, post-Civil right. War families. People, was, people who heard yeah. the, the stories First and everything. And, and, and Margaret Mitchell, who, uh, you know, I believe that she used some of the stories from, uh, it's like, I was her grandmother or something. I, I, can't, I didn't dig too much into Margaret Mitchell and her uh, her foundation as far as where she kind of got got the story from and all that. But, um, but I believe that was the case, where she pulled some of it from family history. Which you know makes sense. She's from the South. Those people were there. She she was telling a story that was very much kind of uh, like you said, kind of escapist romantic entertainment is really kind of what it was. And I think in that sense, and I think that's what I I do find myself drawn to in the story. If I can kind of look past the the slavery elements, if I can look past the the elements that deal with just the the nature of what the this whole like you said the lost cause narrative this you know the the uh this struggle against this government trying to change these people um if you can kind of forget like what that struggle was actually uh, about and just look at it as like this is a, this is a civilization that's dying and these are people who are going through a change and i i did find it really interesting watching scarlet who's i i regardless of the film i find her a riveting character because she is so unlikable but she's so uh just uh, just watchable there's something about her that i was just drawn to and i just i really enjoy that type of character who has to go through a big change over the course of the story and so that helps me get through this film and and i i loved rhett butler i think he had a very interesting 
take on things and, and the wisdom that he had and just the way that he approached everything. Uh, so, I mean, there are elements. But then, you know, you go back to this thing where, gee, they're going off to a quote-unquote political meeting, which means that they're really going to go hot, put on their KKK robes and go burn and uh, burn this little shanty town where all these uh, African Americans live and and kill everybody because they attacked Scarlet when we, she rode through. I mean, I guess that's how it happens in the book. And in the film, it's awfully toned down quite a bit. But when you realize that that's what they're doing, it makes it so hard to like these people. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I, you know, I, I have been comparing this film in some respects to Dust Boat. Um, you know, it's it's this. You know, what is our ability to turn, um, to turn the 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 losing side of the narrative into our hero, uh, and and to make us feel something? You know, for for these people in Das Boot, in this case, is you know how how elegant is that uh, that we walk away from Das Boot having felt, um, you know, a, a felt a positive sense of just sort of faith and following of the these Nazi characters, right? Uh, these Nazi soldiers, and yet I walk away from this film from Gone with the Wind, feeling like, well, they tried, <laughs> and I still the very last line as the door closes. I still walk away thinking, well, the moral of that story, kids, is that sometimes bad things do happen to bad people repeatedly. <laughs> right? Like, I can't help but feeling as and I'm with you. Like, I find the complexity of Rhett Butler and and Scarlett O'Hara's relationship interesting. But it's interesting in in like the, as interesting as, oh, my gosh, there's a car on fire on the highway that that sort of interest. It's like they just when you think that Scarlett O'Hara has learned a lesson that she is going to turn herself around and she is going to be someone of of, you know, not only practical strength, but but moral, sensible strength. She snatches defeat from the jaws of victory and shows her absolutely unlikable, childish inner self that has learned nothing over four hours and many years of my time uh in in movie time and and so by at the end i can't help but walk away saying that's just desserts she got it well no and i i i definitely agree with that i think that she gets everything she deserves and uh but and i love the that Rhett walks out on her finally i think that's just brilliant the way that the way that it ends is brilliant i i think that's a, a strong ending the fact that she still gets kicked into the teeth right yeah. at the end right at the, after 4 hours she still gets it yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's great. You know, the DOS boat reference, I think, is a really good one. And I think what works there that isn't here is we're watching soldiers. Now, yes, they're Nazis, but we're not seeing them in context of any of the people that they are putting down. All we're seeing is just a very small window in their life of them as soldiers just trying to fight and make it through this this uh, these submarine battles that they're having. Here we have a much more epic vision of everything that's going on, and so we see all the slavery. I, I have a feeling Das Boat would be much harder if we also then see them earlier in the film yeah. when they're in town or whatever. You know, I, I think it would be so much harder to really find a connection to those people. And I think that's that's the context of this one is we see all of this these kind of the 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 Uncle Tom type of slaves that these guys have with them, and and everything is painted so glossy and happy. But Andy, the slaves are so happy. 
All of them are so love it. happy and loyal. Yes. I find it just remarkable that you're even bringing up such issues. You know, I'm going to say something, though, about that, because um, Hattie McDaniel got uh, a lot of flack for playing um, for playing her role in this film, and she won an Oscar for it mm-hmm. I, I, as a Best Supporting Actress Oscar, the first African-American to win an Oscar. Um I think um, there's a lot of talk about her role and the NAACP kind of was uh, a little uh, unhappy with her as uh, as she played this role. And she said, you know, I would rather play a maid than be a maid. And I I see her point. I think that's uh, smart. And obviously, she ended up having a a good career in the film and entertainment business. Um, If you take out the fact that she's really a slave, not a maid. I think that there is actually a very interesting relationship portrayed between her and Scarlett. And I, I found it very interesting that she's the one that Scarlett ends up kind of consulting with more over the course of the film uh, than her mother, who actually dies. But I mean, even even when her mother was around, it was it was it was Mammy who was the one who she talked to a lot more. And I really ended up liking their relationship. And that was actually one of the most interesting relationships that I found in the film this go around. I I, I actually agree with you. And I'm I say that sarcastically, but they were so happy. Uh, the, <laughs> the um you know, the the interesting thing here is that uh, she established this sort of maternal relationship with Mammy and, and um, you know, it, it gets to what we were, we're talking about, that if you can move past the fact that this was a slave relationship, if you can do that, then what you see in Hattie McDaniel is a funny, strong, black character actress in a an important and pivotal role in the the dramatic structure of the film right absolutely and you have to be able to step away from that uh and in order to have the appreciation of what she really is able to do in the film but i think the bigger question and you know we, we you had sent the link andy and i forgive me i don't have it up do you have the editorial up about you know i hate gone with the wind i do yes uh it, i i think what that is getting to and i'll let you kind of summarize that but i i think the overall question that these kinds of editorials are are getting to is should we even ask ourselves to step away from that uh, that layer of abstraction you know should we allow ourselves to appreciate gone with the wind as a work of film art um and you know let go of its foundational uh tone deaf uh racism right yeah, John E. Price over at uh, the Huffington Post uh, had a little uh, blog post on there said, yes, you're a racist and a traitor. And it starts with him talking about how he was out jogging and he went past a neighbor's house and, and realized, um, even though he's passed it many, many times, this is the first time that he actually noticed that they're flying a Confederate flag in Pennsylvania. And it started this whole you know this this look into what this means and 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 i mean it's like we said at the beginning this oddly ended up being very timely the fact that we're talking about this but yeah he talks about gone with the wind how it portrays the civil war how it portrays these southern aristocrats its popularity the fact that it's an iconic movie the fact that it was ever made in the first place he said gone with the wind is birth of a nation with less horses the movie and its position among the american cinematic pantheon has done more to further the a historic lost cause BS than any other single production, because that's the fundamental problem with the lost cause narrative. It's not true. 
Um, and he goes, you know, list has a whole list of all the lost cause tinged revisionist talking points like the Civil War is about ec- economics, not slavery. And then his response, yes, the Civil War was about the economics of slavery. And so it's actually a very uh, funny and uh, insightful read that we can post on our uh, in the show notes. But it's um, it does make it very uh, just good points about is this film even one worth looking at and talking about now? And, you know, that's why I think it's so interesting looking at a film like Song of the South, the Song of the South that Disney has still as of yet not released because they know that it is just wildly inappropriate the way that. Um, Uncle Ben Remus is portrayed in that film. It is very much that kind of Uncle Tom sort of um, character who, yes, he's singing zippity doodah and everything, but uh, it's really what's actually going on in their lives is not appropriate. Um, I think that it's probably smart that Disney has not released that. There are ways that you can still track that down if you want to see it. There are films that, I mean, I think that it's kind of time to start looking at what films are appropriate to kind of continue just showing regularly or what do you kind of put aside and say, okay, if you want to go and look at this as a cultural artifact and examine kind of methodically what it's doing wrong and what it's doing right, you know, then I think that's, that's worth uh, talking about. Gone with the wind, Peter Pan. There are some films out there that it's just like, why are these still so widely pumped into our, our entertainment uh, world. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's questionable, even if you take, uh, take away the, the, you know, historical resonance of it. Uh, it, it's, it seems like that we should put the film away because the characters are so like, troublesome. Like they're not really worth talking about. Um, uh, they're, they're not very likable people and they're not, you know, their, their transformations, their cinematic transformations are not that great. They're extremely wealthy people, uh, who have trouble dealing with their own wealth and struggle. And, uh, and so, um, but I, I think that you have a great point, which is, um, you know, maybe this is one of those films that must come with the caveat that says you can't watch this outside of historical context you this is this is one you need to be able to process yeah and and it's unfortunate that there are films out there that just don't you know it's it's not like there is something that gets put out with films i mean you know disney does that with films that show smoking now like pinocchio where they'll have a little public service announcement that plays beforehand about why smoking is bad and stuff but i mean i don't know if kids really get much out of that when you're watching the movie this is one of those films where it seems like you really need to kind of set aside and just if you're going to watch it you need to be ready to have some conversations about it yeah yeah well, so I am assuming that because we haven't hung up the show, that we are going to talk about it in the context of uh, we're going to talk uh, about it uh, as a film, and we're going to go ahead and and let our concerns be hereby noted. Yes, and uh, and let's go ahead and talk through some of our uh, some of the parts we find most interesting as a film. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it was a tough one to get made. Uh, David Oselznik uh, originally didn't want it. Uh, and when he heard about it and it was extremely popular and, uh, he heard about it and then, uh, discovered that his assistant pitched it to the other side of his, uh, production house. Uh, and then he decided, okay, we need to go ahead and buy it. And so 
from there, it took years to get it cast, to get the script written, to get the script cut from a five and a half hour film to four hours. It was extremely difficult to get made. Um, and yet somehow they did. Yeah, he bought it in July of 1936, I believe, and it was released in December 39, started production January 39. So it did take a good couple of years once he bought it. I mean, there were lots of challenges. This was at that time when there were, uh, I mean, part of the reason that 1939 is talked about as such a big year for Hollywood is this was kind of the peak of the studio system. The studios really were cranking out lots of great films. They had a lot of uh, I mean, it really was like a factory. They just had all these contracts with actors. They had contracts with crew. They had contracts with directors, writers who were there working for them, cranking these things out where people were doing insane numbers of films every year. It's just crazy how many uh, films people would just be working on. And these directors like Victor Fleming, George Cukor, Sam Wood, they were kind of ending up jumping back and forth between projects because they were uh, contracted by the studio who kind of put them where they needed to, like the Greek gods moving their little figurines around as needed. And so this was a film where um, Selznick really wanted um, to find the right cast and, and really make sure that he told this story well, because he was in love with this story. And and he you know was going to put a lot of money into it. Selznick um, International was one of the kind of the smaller studios at the time. And he partnered with MGM. I believe he was married to uh, Louis B. Mayer's daughter. And yes. so he kind of he kind of worked with them. On this project, they both put in some money, and um, through them, he ended up getting Clark Gable, although there were a few names getting bandied about. And I believe the deal to get Gable was they, uh, in in order to uh, for Gable to come along, he was married and he wanted a divorce so that he could marry Carol Lombard, who he'd fallen in love with. And so he got them to pay him an additional fifty grand that he was able to pay his wife his wife at the time who for to get the divorce. Um, so I love that story. Yeah, I love that story. Those were the uh, days. <laughs> they, I believe, they also got. Uh, and this is a point I I find really interesting financially that they uh, MGM got seven years, half of the the uh, gross receipts for seven years right. uh, of of the film's release. Uh, there's no home video. Right. So we're talking about seven years of theatrical release around the world. Right. 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 Is that what you're is that how you understand it? I mean, that's yeah, that's vaguely how I understand it. Although I know that down the line, um, Selznick ended up having to sell off his his share of the uh, of the rights because um, he was, you know, he was just as his own little producer, he was kind of financially strapped and had to sell his rights. So I don't know who ended up, I don't know if MGM ended up buying the rights back, but somehow, um, uh, I, I don't know who has the rights now. That's that, that's a shame. That's a hard signature to I know. put down on paper. If you're David O. Selznick. I, uh, yeah. Uh, Knowing how much this film has made over its lifetime, it's uh, definitely a very painful yeah. decision for him to have had. To I, I just, I just found it more interesting that we're talking about that they were banking on seven years of of, you know, revenue off of this film. Um, you know, I, I'm because I'm so, un, you know, I, I was not alive 
Is it that in 1945, I could still go find Gone with the Wind in a theater? Well, it's because what it did is it, when they initially, I believe it started as a road show where um, they they have the film. I, I think it actually played several ways it, as, after its premiere in Atlanta. I believe it went on a road show, which is basically a very big kind of production of this of this movie going around like on the road. And it would go around and come to certain areas and play in those areas. And for the road show version, I believe that Selznick had some uh, I can't remember if he was doing like. Uh, almost kind of like a, a cinemascope sort of thing where he had shot, I think for some scenes, like three cameras next to each other where you could see like the fire scene when, when Atlanta's burning. You've got three images next to each other to kind of create this gargantuan fire scene. And so it would go on the road for a very long time and then it would play in other theaters. Um, so that's my sense is why they settled on seven years because they really felt like that was it would it would have some life uh, to actually play for quite a while that's fascinating because um, i mean there was there is, yeah, yeah you're right there's no home video I and mean, people if they wanted to go see it again they had to go back to the theater yeah and and so the idea that they that they had this sort of model of getting the film doing sort of mini premieres or events like that i think is uh, that's really interesting i was not aware of that yeah okay so the film got made. The film got cast. Uh, man, there were a lot of names in contention. I think the most interesting thing about this is just the level of public furor around uh, around who is going to play these parts of Rhett and Scarlet. Well, Margaret Mitchell had written this book that turned into a huge phenomenon. I, I it was I, I don't know if it still is, but it was at one point like the the best selling book of all time, sort of thing. It was a very, 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 very popular book. And so yeah, the just the the people had very specific ideas as to who they wanted. Selznick came up with the great idea of actually having a uh, kind of a public poll of who should play Scarlet and all of these names. I mean, all the big names were all thrown in. And apparently one guy in New Zealand threw in the name Vivian Lee. Um, that's not how they ended up pulling Vivian Lee in. But it was just one of those, those strange coincidences um, that there's one person out there thinking of her, at least. But um, yeah, she wasn't even really on the table. She had actually heard about this. She was over in England um, and she had heard that they were making this and just decided that she had to be in the part. And so somehow she uh, ended up over there in the U.S. and she met Selznick's brother who brought who who realized that she was probably the perfect person. And she, he brought her to the uh, the burning of Atlanta, these special effects scenes, which they filmed long before the filming actually began. They actually were burning down old stu uh, studio sets, like the old King Kong gate. They were burning down a couple of the old other sets from other films. And uh, they were just kind of, they made them to look like Atlanta, whatever. But they burned all that down. They actually, for that scene, they had all seven Technicolor cameras in existence filming the burning of Atlanta scenes. And while they were there, um, Selznick, um, Selznick's brother actually introduced Vivian Lee to David O. Selznick and, uh, the, everything just clicked. He realized this is the perfect, uh, Scarlet and he had her do some reads with other people and everything and just knew that she was the one. I, I think that is, she is a fascinating character because she was, she was in England, uh, doing a, a show with Laurence Olivier and fell in love with Laurence Olivier. And she had an agent in England that she was 
apparently happy with, but heard about this whole thing happening, uh, gone with the wind and started working and scheming. She is an, she was an incredibly duplicitous person, uh, judging by these reports. She actually went and signed with Myron Selznick, who was an, an, an agent here in the United States without telling her, her British agent that she was doing it just so she could, you know, come over here and get close to the Selznick production. Um, and so, you know, it is as it is reported, at least in, in some of the making of material, um, you know, one of the reasons that that she said she she was perfect for the role and, and that David O. Selznick eventually said she was perfect for the role is that, you know, she really ended up doing exactly what Scarlett O'Hara would have done to get her way and and sort of weasel her way into the part. Right, right. Yeah, she definitely did seem uh, the, to be kind of the embodiment of Scarlett. Yeah, yeah. And she was. I mean, she yeah. was she was great. She was much better than that. I mean, you know, I spent some time this afternoon watching a bunch of screen tests of the other um, you know, lots of other women that they had had recorded to or shot to to do this. And I think she is terrific and it's a it's a fascinating thing listening to her. She has a, a natural sort of native British accent and uh to hear her speak and then shift into this this southern bell kind of uh, draw which is you know she came and read for the part uh having never really heard a southern accent right. uh, and so it sort of developed over over you know over a very short period of time but i think it sounds really good and it has become sort of a, a international staple of of what southerners southern gentle ladies sound like well, and Selznick, I mean, they really worked. Uh, I, I believe he had a really good working relationship with Margaret Mitchell, and she actually put him in touch with a couple people from the South that she knew who actually came on board to help train the actors with their accents and all that. Um, Selznick is notorious for his memos. That was one thing that everybody always talked about with David O. Selznick, um, whether it's on this one or uh, Hitchcock certainly had a, his fair share of memos when he was doing uh, Rebecca. Um, there's a, a memo that Selznick wrote that I think is pretty funny about just the, the, right toward the beginning of production with, with Vivian Lee. He said, Miss Lee should report regularly at 9 or 9.30 each morning, work at least two hours on her accent, then report for fittings, then report for rehearsals with Mr. Cukor and for any photographic tests that may be necessary. I should like the photographic tests to include various experiments with ways of making up her eyebrows to make them look more natural and more in period, different makeups and experiments with her figure, including particularly her bosom. Uh, would you like to receive that memo andy i'd like you to do more experiments with your bosom (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt there you go (laughs) oh that's good oh yes 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 all right so there uh, is uh the good uh, there's yes yeah uh tragic life man vivian lee he really was uh uh, I mean, she had a great life with uh, Laurence Olivier, but uh, when she was doing Streetcar Named Desire, it just kind of it seemed to drive drive her into madness, really. And aside from her tuberculosis and everything, she uh, and her manic depression really kicked in and kind of drove her to divorce. And then the tuberculosis got her, and she ended up dying. Very tragic life that she had, yeah. but successful. She made a lot of great films. Yeah, she did burn brightly. Yes, indeed. Uh, there was there was no such consternation around the casting of Rhett Butler. It seems like the popular sentiment at the time was Clark Gable is the guy. He's the one you have to get. Find out what you got to do to get him. 
and so they did. But it didn't seem like, I mean, there weren't the hundreds and hundreds of screen tests for Rhett Butler that there were for Scarlett O'Hara. It's my understanding. No, no. Mm-hmm. But he brought a lot to the character. I mean, I just, I, I love the way that he kind of, it's it, he seems kind of just happy and dismissive about things you know there's yeah. there's the a wisdom and honesty uh, in his shrewdness and his selfishness that i find myself really drawn to i i like watching him on screen he's very uh as, as much as you don't like some of the things that he's doing as far as uh, just you know the the world of the south i do like him as a character i find him pretty fun to watch he's sort of uh, he tortures me a little bit because, you know, I find that, I, you know, I love him because he's a scallywag, right? He's like the original Han Solo. You know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, right. And and he really is the original Han Solo. Like he was he was a freelancer. Uh, he was a, what do they call him? Um He was not in the military. And then he joined the military. He joined the Rebel Alliance right, uh, right. To, to become a captain. Uh, in the Confederate Army and go fight for the the rebels, and that uh, you know, I, boy, I really liked him. I really liked that that sort of renegade vibe. And then he says, oh, "I'm going to go sign up," and I, God, it's like a head slapping moment. It's like, oh, really? Ah, oh, really? Oh, just when I was getting to to like you, but I find it interesting that. That we have this cultural context where where I uh, have that relationship with with Red Butler and uh, not with Han Solo. I don't know. <laughs> they, have, they have an awful lot of robot slaves. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? I think Star Wars, the entire Star yeah, Wars right. saga, really is, is uh, gone with the wind. That's what I'm saying. The, all those all those droids, they're just slaves. They're, Slave they labor. Are all this is it. Chewbacca. Oh, we're in trouble. Is <laughs> we're going down a dark road, Pete. <laughs> we, we are. <laughs> I think we are. Let's oh, go ahead and bring it back. We've yes. been talking for a long time about these two people, and I think we need to. Uh, I think we need to start busting out some of our favorite sequences. And I want to tell you mine because you've already opened the door to it, which is the burning of Atlanta, which for me was the you know sort of the central highlight of the film for me, and I find it wonderful because you know when you when you see press photos of the big you always see the dip right the clark gable dip of scarlett o'hara you know there that is so uh, like how overdone the that when they lean into each other to like talk at each other's mouths so close you know they talk so close to their mouths and the camera is right on them and it's a perfect square and sometimes it's a silhouette and sometimes it's not but in a four-hour movie man that gets played out uh and so the sequences that really stuck out to me were the giant set pieces. When they start burning stuff and you see the little, uh, you know, the little carriage inserted in front of this giant burning Atlanta, when you see the, you know, what they had to do, the scale of the destruction, when the soldiers start coming back through uh, and and they, they the camera, uh, the, there's that beautiful crane shot where they lift up and then slowly they tilt up and you see the hundreds and hundreds to thousands of bodies strewn out across the rail yard. Those giant set pieces that you never see in the glorify uh, the glorification of Gone with the Wind, the film kind of press material. Those were the sequences that really blew me away, that just really had me engaged in in the story that, as you say, highlighted the fact that this was a world ending event. For the South, that this ended the way their universe 
sort of rotates. And, uh, and so I, I really celebrated the visuals of that, of that sequence of these sequences. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that was strong. I was also, uh, you know, I have to say, Olivia de Havilland, I kind of have forgotten her a bit in this, but I really liked Melanie. There was something about her honesty, her, uh, it's almost like her belief in the best of everything that I was really drawn to, I was really touched by, even though she, I, I think there were times there was, she knew that Scarlett had a thing for, for her husband, uh, Ashley, I, I there, I feel like Melanie always strove to find the best in people, and I was really drawn to uh, most everything that Olivia De Havilland was in. I, I really liked her, and in particular, I really liked the the bit when everything was falling apart, all the men were off at war, and and she was at home at Terra with all the other women, and they were for the first time having to kind of work and do things. It wasn't all about balls and stuff, but they were out in the in the cotton field picking cotton, and and there was something about just kind of the the nature of that scene that kind of uh, it just it seemed to ground the people a little more, and I I found myself kind of drawn to those sorts of scenes. Oh, I agree with you. I think that was that's a nice sequence, and that sort of surprised me in the beginning because you said you you. And I had a tough time getting through the middle. And to me, that was the that was the middle. Uh, so what was it that you had a tough time with? I, I shouldn't say a tough time. It's just it, it didn't I didn't remember the middle as well. It's like the beginning mm. and the end are, are the, the, the parts that, for whatever reason, always stick out to me. And the middle always gets lost in my mental ether. And when the middle hits here. Um, I just kind of like, oh, yeah, I forgot about all this stuff. And then we've got to go through all this. And, and it's I mean, it's a four hour movie. Of course, there's going to be a lot of stuff here. But for me, it's always like the war starts and then she's married to Rhett and their kid dies. <laughs> then, like, I, I forget that she's I had, you know, she's had two husbands before him. And, and there's so many other That's things. Right. In your version, there's actually a laugh track. <laughs> it's like a 22 minute. Serial. <laughs> that that is uh yeah that, that really is and I, you know i'm glad you you brought up uh melly because i i think you're right she is she's sort of the the the, the sole anchor of this film because everybody else is just you know they 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 really some horrible things happen you bring up the the death of of their daughter of of um bon, bonnie blue bonnie blue and and that's a tough one because you can tell she's already growing up to be uh, an incredibly spoiled, entitled Southern Belle. Right. Yes, she is. And so, yes, she is. like, her death is, uh, it's a symbolic death of, a, of an archetype of the South, right? Like, we have this great new energetic life that represents all the things that these bells were, spoiled, rich, and, uh, you know, in, entitled uh, sort of Southern royalty, and she is killed on a horse, and, on a pony. And right. uh, that, that really, I think, represents, again, this is, this is where your world stops. You can't recreate yeah. what you had. Um, and we're just going to keep sending that message until you get it. Right, 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 because tomorrow is another day, Pete. <laughs> <sighs>
Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Um, okay. So Olivia de Havilland was fantastic. Were there any other key, uh, players that you wanted to, to highlight besides the big, the big ones? Um, yeah. Uh, Leslie Howard, I think is, is the other of the four key players. He's the other one that we haven't mentioned, uh, yeah. that much, but at playing Ashley, I think he's very much a critical part of the story. And Leslie Howard, fantastic British actor. Um, he had actually, he didn't want to be in this film. Um, David Oselznick, uh, uh, ended up agreeing to pay him or to give him a producer credit on another film that he was doing called Intermezzo because Leslie Howard wanted to kind of move into that side of uh, side of things. And so Leslie Howard uh, um, ended up as a producer on Intermezzo, which I believe also came out in 1939. And um, but Leslie Howard, yeah, he didn't really want to be a part of it. Um, he never read the book. David Oselznick kept trying to harangue him to get him to read the book. Uh, Leslie Howard, it just he just didn't didn't click with it completely. And I think um, what I heard was, I mean, he had actually fought in World War One, and he had seen a lot of the stuff going on in war and just the, the whole nature of this story. Uh, he just it just he felt like he knew that dark side of war and didn't want to be a part of that story. Um, and then tragically he ended up dying, uh, during world war two. I think it was, a. Um, I think he had, I can't remember if he had gone off to fight or what, but he uh, ended up dying, um, in a plane crash. I think he was shot down by, uh, by enemy, uh, enemy guns. Yeah. Sad because yeah. he, he also, you're right. He, he has, he brings some of the, some of the heart, uh, to this film, although it, it it's kind of a bruised heart, uh, it, it's certainly not to the level of of Melly, which is interesting because he ends up with Melly, but he is the ultimate tease, uh, and, and really spends uh, you know four hours sort of leading on uh, Scarlet. Yeah, he's pretty terrible. He's really that. really terrible about that, and this this whole thing again. Talk about a movie that could take place in a in a, a high school in 1980 i mean it really is this this whole thing <laughs> whole thing takes place about <laughs> uh, about bruised sort of romance um really yeah. not childhood but childish romance 
It's, and, I mean, it very much is a kind it's of a that melodrama. Yeah, very melodramatic sort of story. Yeah. Uh, but, but I mean, I but I do like Leslie Howard. I think he's great. I do too. Uh, I like. Uh, let's see. The, the I there. I like everybody in in this film. I think generally it's cast really well. Um, you know, Scarlett's both George Reeves, uh, yep. Fred Crane. I mean, these uh, these guys are they're funny. Uh, they're charismatic. Um, you know, they're incredibly superficial. Uh, but I do enjoy the banter. I enjoy kind of the way they they parade themselves and preen. Um, the the cast of servants, um, yeah, Mammy well, Pork and Prissy, uh, Hattie McDaniel, Oscar Polk, and Butterfly McQueen are all wonderful to to watch. They are incredibly talented actors, and and I think they they also do a great job. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. I, I was going to say just going back to um, the Tarleton brothers, um, George Reeves and Fred Crane. Um, something that I do like about this film. Um, in the context of the war is that it doesn't hold back on just people dying. And it's just, it's a constant reminder that during war, people in, in all walks of life, in any, you know, however they're connected to you, people die. The Tarleton brothers, we hear both of them ended up getting killed. We, uh, you know, uh, Scarlet's first husband. He dies of pneumonia that he caught when he was out fighting. Um, it's just, it's interesting to me how many people end up dying during war and how it's touching all these people. And so that was just, uh, that's what I wanted to say about those two. Yeah, it's good. I, I think that's one of the things that you get at the advantage that you get when you actually offer yourself the opportunity to create a four hour film. Oh, yeah. Is you get a sense of scope. Um, it, it's a sense of, uh, of that kind of connection that you get with you know i i feel like we used to get them more with the with the when we had more miniseries you know i i feel like right, we don't do right. a lot of miniseries anymore like shogun uh yeah, right you know that, that we sort of grew up with um yeah anyhow so this yeah. is one of those films that it does i think it really gives you a satisfying sense of scope uh yep. and scale to the to the the connections all these relationships Thomas Mitchell is another uh, just a fantastic actor of the time who was very busy. I mean, he was this was one of his five films, one, two, three, four, five films that he was in in 1939. He was uh, her father. He was Gerald O'Hara. He was also in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He was also in Only Angel, Angels Have Wings. He was also in Stagecoach. He was also in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> <laughs> Very busy, wow. and he won. He won best supporting actor for Stagecoach, I believe, um, for uh, for his portrayal in that film. So, uh, yeah, very very busy man. Um, fantastic actor. I mean, I always remember him from his uh, role in It's a Wonderful Life because uh, you know he was kind of a very critical role in that film, and that's just uh, he's you know constantly in my head as. Uh, uh, as that role in that film, because it's, uh, I don't know. I, I guess that's just where you, where I first met him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, I don't have one of those connections with him, but until it, you know, now it's gone with the wind until about uh, up to about Sunday. And now all I can imagine him in is gone with the wind. I can't that's even, funny. you named all those other four films. I can't even picture him in those films. I can picture him in uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but Uncle Billy in It's a Wonderful Life. That's like, that's how I know him. I know, but that's not his face. You mentioned that, and I can't see his face. <laughs> I only see <laughs> Gerald. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, um, go ahead. 
just a, a other random people, uh, just actors that are worth mentioning. Uh, Jane Darwell, who is one of the uh, the the gossipy old birds, mm-hmm. um, she goes on to be uh, the bird lady in Mary Poppins. Tuppence a bag. Oh wow! Yeah, totally tuppence a bag, lady. You know, it's not funny. Oh, I did not see that at all. But see now, see, I used to see uh, Gerald when I imagined her, and now I actually see her. <laughs> Um, and then Bonnie, who he mentioned, she plays uh, the voice of Faleen, the deer in Bambi. Oh, yeah, I did. I wouldn't have been able to pull that. Not and one close. that, well, no, I wouldn't either. But the one that I think is when you know it, it's so easy to pinpoint the dying soldier that Melanie and Scarlett are talking to when they're helping all the soldiers um, in the church. Once they start coming home, you never see the soldier. You only hear him talking to them. That guy is the done by Cliff Edwards, who played Jiminy Cricket. You go back and watch that scene, and you're like, oh, my God, it is totally Jiminy Cricket that they're talking to. No. That's <laughs> yes. great. I know. It's very funny. Uh, okay. Well, now I need to go watch that. There you go. Uh, so nobody else on your hot list uh, before we move into some of the other uh, roles? Uh, nobody, no other actors, mm-hmm. um, just the rest, just some crew that I think that we should be talking about. Okay. Do you want to talk this... at all before we go into deep crew, talk at all about, uh, George Cukor or, um, uh, I think that's a good place to start with yeah. the crew. Yeah. I think, um, Cukor is a great director, uh, directed a number of just fantastic films. He was the original director of this film. Um, and, there were just uh, issues that he was having. He's a, he's a smaller film director. He um, was, uh, I mean, I guess you could classify him as some people would say a women's picture director. You know, uh, I think that's kind of a terrible way to describe some of the films, but I know that he's been described as such in the past. Um, Fantastic films, but they're films that aren't as big in scope. And, Selznick was getting worried after the first 10 days of filming. They only had about 23 minutes of film that they could use. And uh, so they had talked quite a bit. And Cukor ended up, some say, stepped down. Some say he was kind of fired. Nobody really knows anymore. But anyway, Cukor left the picture. Um, Vivian Lee, Olivia de Havilland were very much in love with working with Cukor, and they were very upset when Selznick brought uh, Victor Fleming. He they, he pulled him off of Wizard of Oz and put him on this, and he was very much a man's director. And he and Clark Gable were great friends, which was great for the uh, for them. But those two women had a really hard time with uh, with Fleming, and ended up, I guess, still having secret meetings on the weekends with Cukor just to work through character issues and stuff like that. Which is a very interesting uh, thing to hear. It is interesting, but man, you look at at the the body of work of Fleming versus Cukor, and you can totally see what you're saying. Yeah. Right there, you know, Cukor has these wonderful comedic sort of relationship films, and Victor Fleming has Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and Captain's Courageous, and Test right. Pilot, and I, I mean, it's just uh, one after another. Treasure Island. I mean, these these more sort of rollicking adventure films, um, and and yet my experience with this film is not one of uh, mishandled direction. 
No, uh, I mean, what a lot of people say is that Selznick was so hands-on in the making of this film that it really is a a good example of the producer really being the one who guided it, where you don't have a sense of any one particular director kind of at the helm. It really does feel like a, a Selznick you know, body yeah. of work that he really ended up nurturing this all the way through. And I mean, it was a big gamble, so he kind of had to. But uh, Fleming did bring a lot of that energy that was needed to tell kind of the bigger parts of the story. Oh, and then Sam Wood ended up coming on for a couple weeks because I think after about two months of Victor Fleming working on it, there was either a, a fight or Fleming had a nervous breakdown or something. And he left for two weeks and Sam Wood was brought on to direct, who we talked about recently on King's Row. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then Flick Fleming came back to finish it. But uh, between the three directors, um, there was, uh, you know, there's a lot of shooting. This film, I mean, they shot, what was it, like half a million feet of film mm-hmm. in the making of this film that they then had to cut down to 20,000 feet. So, I mean, that's just insane. It is. It is stunning. Stunning. Yeah. Um the uh, I I think you're you're right the way you you phrase this I I really I, I think it's fair to look at this as a as a David O Selznick uh, picture with a lot of really talented ads <laughs> right uh, the writing credits uh, uh, moving the the over from the Margaret Mitchell book who who really let go I mean she was yeah she really hands off. And and you know right. what's funny though, I I was originally trying to characterize her. I, I wanted to find sort of a modern parallel, and and I I thought maybe she's kind of a J.K. Rowling, um, you know, this unknown who writes this book and didn't even think it was going to get published, and it ends up being found, and the notes are all out there, and they she she gives the notes to a reader, and then suddenly it it just you know goes bananas popular, uh, except for J.K. Rowling is so hands on and so active. Um, right, right, right. Uh, it doesn't doesn't quite work, but that's sort of the the uh, parallel to the growth of popularity of Margaret Mitchell uh, as a star author of the era. She went from right. zero to really famous really fast. She sure did, yeah. And then she never wanted a sequel. She wanted, you know, this was how yeah. she wanted the story to be. And I know that there was a sequel written eventually, and a miniseries made, and a musical, and all this stuff. But she was very content with the book as it was, and nothing else. So what's your sense of the uh, actual written work? I mean, I, I think Sidney Howard came on to write the script. I think he did a solid... I mean, I haven't read the book, so I can't say how he translated it. But from everything I've heard, he did a... I mean, it was a very lengthy job. And then Ben Hecht came on to do some rewrites. And then it just kept going from hand to hand. Oliver H.P. Garrett came on, Joe Swirling, John Van Druten. They all came on... Um, Q- and, and Selznick was doing rewrites too, and, and that's one of the reasons Cukor was having trouble is that the script was going through so many changes that he just didn't feel it was going in the right direction anymore. And when Fleming came on board, he actually said he wanted to go back to the Howard draft that Hecht had done a few rewrites on, and that's the version that ended up getting made. I think that it's a solid script. I mean, I think the character development is good. I mean, it is a long movie, but I do think that the script works in context for what they're trying to do. I think so too, and and I think you're I think you're right that because this is such a a big ambitious story, the the long script, the long film gives you an opportunity to really take your time and uh, and get to know these people. Uh, and and kind of build a relationship with these people, and I think the the pacing works pretty well. And you know, I I told you this was I, I I've never actually watched it start to finish, and I can say that that goes unbroken. I I wasn't able to get through it, but I only broke once. I I made it through 
two and a half hours one night and then did the the last hour and a half the next night. And it it felt uh, like a whole unified piece. It did not feel like a film that the kind of film that we've talked about that has so many hands in it. It's just a big disjointed mess. This is it felt like a, a singular uh, narrative spectacle. I really uh, in, on that front, I think it works really well. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, for, you know, 125 days of filming, yeah. I think they managed to kind of pull it all together nicely. And Sidney Howard is is not was not an easy writer to work with. He he wanted to write from his farm exclusively and and was really frustrated with kind of uh, uh, with O'Selznick's um, uh, O'Selznick, like it's an apostrophe, <laughs> like he's Irish <laughs> with Selznick's uh, demands. Uh, and and uh, I think he made one trip to California to actually uh, work on this thing. But for the rest of it, he was. He, he wanted to work only from his farm uh, in Massachusetts, uh, and that was very frustrating for Selznick. I think that's what originally uh, brought him, uh, caused him to look at other writers to get involved. Right, but, right. but again, you're right that um, it, it is essentially the Howard draft we're watching. And sadly, uh, Howard died while it was still being edited. He had an accident on his tractor in August, uh, right uh, a few months before the film came out. So, see, farms. <laughs> stay away mm-hmm. let this be a lesson <laughs> that's, that's terrible oh man uh okay back to the uh the other uh credits uh i think a hugely hugely important one to talk about is william cameron menzies who was the production designer on this and designed the color palette of the entire film all the way through it had tons of boards drawn up to really try to make sure that they hit all the right tones for every scene the color in this especially i mean i i'm assuming that you watched the the most recently restored version um that was restored uh, the three strip technicolor restoration process that they do to take these three images and blend the colors so beautifully i mean it was a stunning stunning film to watch i just was you know dumbfounded constantly by just the level of detail I was seeing and the way that they blended the colors in some of the scenes and, and the sky. I mean, everything in it just was, was just gorgeous to yeah. look at whether it, yeah, whether, yeah. whether it's, whether it's the, the mansion when it's all decrepit falling apart or when it's in its glory, it's all gorgeous. Blues and reds, baby blues and reds. Every frame is such a, you know what it reminded me of? Are you ready? Tell me. Fury Road. <laughs> there you go. Right? It That's is. Right. So I took, I, 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 you know, I was, I, as I was watching, I was taking a bunch of screenshots of it so that I could, um, you know, do whatever images that were, I'm going to do on my stuff for this film this week. And, and I took more than I normally do, which is like one or two. I took like 60. And I'm looking at them in my photos app here, and I zoom them way out so that I'm looking at, at just little thumbnails. And it is a it matches the Fury Road palette. Like you look at it side by side, you wouldn't be able to tell which film it is. It's just this beautiful set of uh, deep, rich blues, reds, and and this sort of red orange kind of yellow. Um, but it it is a very consistent color palette, and it's it just works. It works really well. It, it, yeah, wonderfully. Uh, mature palette and, and he was he was really on this as kind of the second unit director um and really helped guide a lot of the uh the way that a lot of those sorts of scenes like the the burning of atlanta like mm-hmm. making sure those were done the way they needed to be so incredible uh sense of 
color in this film that he put together. Um, so kudos to him big time. And he went on to, uh, you know, produce and direct some of his own stuff too. I mean, stuff that I haven't seen, but I really want to like, uh, invaders from Mars, HG Wells's things to come, mm. things like that, that I just, uh, I really, <laughs> I, I'm sure are silly, but I want to check them out now. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, and, you know, he also gets credit for taking uh, for, for building these sort of fantasy palace plantations too. you know, the Wilkes Place right. and Tyra, uh, these iconic locations, taking them and making them bigger and more opulent than they would have been at the time. I think that's to his credit. And I think he worked well with Jack Cosgrove, the next person on my list, who was the effects person on this film. Um, the visual effects that they used to uh, to create this world. You watch a film from 1939, especially a film that takes place in uh, in the Civil War era, you're not thinking of special effects that often. But you see some of these shots, and then you watch um, some of the making of as to how they did the special photographic effects, and you see how they, like the matte paintings that they created. Like when, when uh, Mammy... And uh, the other slaves are going up to their new mansion in Atlanta. That mansion is actually Selznick's uh, Selznick's um, studio. And then you see what it looks like, you, a, a frame of what it looked like before they treated it. And then you see like with the matte painting that they did on it uh, to actually make it look like it's a totally different mansion in a totally different time period. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And, and all the different work that he did combining shots and rear screen projection, Jack Cosgrove, uh, you know, we don't uh, talk about a lot of effects, like I said, in these older films, but he deserves major kudos for what he brought to the art form. Yes, 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 he does. I, when are we, when are we going to talk about Max Steiner? He's coming up. He's okay, coming up. I'll hold off then. Okay. Walter Plunkett did the costumes. Um, I don't really have a lot to say other than, wow, great costumes. <laughs> um, it just lots of detail. This is the level. It's like the Lord of the Rings level of yeah. detail that these people went into making just like full-fledged outfits. I, I think that they all look great. <laughs> hey, great costumes. <laughs> Good job, Walter. Okay. Uh, and Max Steiner. <laughs> Max Steiner. Get ready, Andy. Are you ready? I don't know. Am I? Did you yes. like this? Did you like this score? I I do. I, well, I like the, I like the main theme in particular, <laughs> the Terra's Terra's theme. Yeah. Yes. I do too. I agree with you. <laughs> I <laughs> I'm excited when I when we agree because I I think the last several I haven't liked as much as you have, and this one I was feeling very proud because I thought you would like this one. And I like it too. I actually, I like more than Terrace theme. I actually quite, quite enjoyed the, the score. I think it's a, uh, he does some lovely work. It is, it is, he's an Austrian composer, which I find it, uh, I, I, I think there is a sense of like, um, uh, of, of European kind of Hollywood grunge. Uh, in, in his orchestrations, you know, it feels like a, <laughs> like a, a European sort of symphony um to me and so um i i really like that i think i i think it works well with the, the southern um the southern gestalt that that is on screen well and he tapped into a lot of music that was played at the time in the civil war era mm -hmm. and and there's songs like you hear those sorts of songs blended through the score all through and i think that was a very smart way to kind of tie this music to that era Right. It's, it felt like it's like one big mashup. 
Right. Uh, it was good. I, I, I enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed it. This was one of 13 films that he scored in 1939. <laughs> Goodness. Yes. Very, very busy man. Very busy man. That's crazy. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's an incredible composer. He's, I mean, you go back to some of the stuff that he did uh, at the beginning. I mean, King Kong, 1933, really a lot of composers consider that kind of the foundation for the modern score and what it would bring to how it worked in the film and what it would bring to the story. And Steiner was kind of key in that. And so, yeah, he's a lot of a lot of uh, strength in Steiner's scores and definitely in particular here. Yeah, Absolutely. The uh, the last name I have on my list to talk about is uh, Yakima Kanut. Well, of course, of course. How could we? How could we not talk about old Yakima? Yakima, Yakima, Yakima or Canute? Maybe yeah, I don't Knut. know who Yakima Canute is. Oh wait, okay. I found he, I found Yakima. He's uh, stunts. This yep. is. Um, Something that uh, just I I figured that he's worth bringing up because uh, we posted on Facebook earlier in the week uh, because the the stunt society is really pushing every year trying to get an Oscar category for best stunt work, which I think is a brilliant idea. I mean, stunts are so critical to filmmaking uh, these days. And they, there is a, an incredible level of artistry in what they do. It's not just a technical jump off the horse and, and land on that pad sort of thing. Right. And so I think, um, uh, you know, looking back at what these guys are doing back in 1939, I mean, Yakima was doing a lot of uh, great stunt work back there for uh, Clark Gable. And I mean, he was the one, I think, who doubled for Gable during the, the burning of Atlanta, riding in the, in the uh, stagecoach there and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to throw him out there and say kudos, Yakima. Great work. He's, uh, you know, he's another one of those people. You look at the credits that he did just in 1939, and it's, I I mean, I don't, it's probably at least 20 films. So Nice. Good on yes. you, Yakima. Indeed, indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, how'd you do on numbers? Good. You want to talk about it? This, yeah, sure. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> okay. This film, uh, it, you know, as much as Selznick was trying to keep the budget uh, at, I think, three million, it did go over. It ended up at three point nine million. Is what I found for the production budget adjusted to today's dollars. That's about sixty five point uh, three million dollars for the budget. So, I mean, for a four hour epic, that's pretty good, I would say. Yeah. Um, this film ended up grossing domestically this is interesting because the people who track this film i think are very meticulous in tracking it all of its re-releases that it's had over the years because they this film basically is in the number one slot on our list right now because it's made so much money domestically it grossed 200 million 276,459 dollars internationally 201.5 million dollars um, for a total of four hundred and one million, uh, almost four hundred two million adjusted, that's about six point seven uh, billion dollars <laughs> adjusted total gross. What's, what's the spread there between one and two on our list? Uh, what's, the what Exorcist is, next? is the number Exorcist? two, and that's at two point uh, one billion. Wow. So, it's a uh, it's a very hefty spread for a four hour movie. E- even its adjusted gross per finished minute is still healthy at twenty eight million uh, per finished minute, and The Exorcist is at seventeen million. So that's it's amazing. A, yeah, uh, 
Oh, so that was the adjusted gross. The adjusted uh, profit is pretty close to that too. Yeah, it's 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 uh, only second on our list for the adjusted profit to cost. We talked about Mad Max being number one, and uh, because the amount of money it made, it's uh, five hundred times what its budget was. This one made a hundred times its budget, and nothing else even comes close to those two. Wow. Well, it's uh, it is it is a beautiful film that is really not not a good exercise to watch how's that it's it's, yeah i mean this is a film that people are there are always going to be people who love this film i just think that it's it's it has the type of storytelling that can draw some people in it's if if you get past all the rest of it or you're just not paying attention to the all the, the the slavery and everything else that we talked about earlier there are always going to be people who will be able to just get past that and watch this film um but in context of modern society and everything going on today, it is a much more difficult film to watch. I think that's the lesson for me was that, you know, maybe uh, before last week, you know, before just the absolute tragedy uh, in the church last week, I I feel like I may have been able to watch this film and think, uh, oh, it's a, you know, it's a fable, whatever it's a, that's fine. It's it's fantasy. It's a romance. You know, let it go. I I I take the existence of the film more seriously, you know, today than I did last week. And and so I feel like it's important to appreciate the amazing amount of work that these people put into creating this this amazing film. Um, and also to say that that we may have we may have outlived its usefulness to be able to watch it uh, as a as a bit of escapist media without having a conversation about what it represents. Yeah, absolutely. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of I am based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter. Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. So we should probably rank it. Let's do it. You should head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you should uh, see uh, if, if our uh, stack rankings of our very favorite films line up with your stack rankings of your very favorite films. And let's just see. I, I don't know. I'm not 
I I think I can appreciate this film and still not really want to watch it all that many more times in my life. So I'm curious well, to see where this goes. It is very long, so it's it's not one that I will put on very often. All right, let's do let's it. Let's see. All right, Gone with the Wind or The Road Warrior? The Road Warrior. I think we can both both safely say The Road Warrior. <laughs> Gone with the Wind or Taxi Driver? I I am going to... <laughs> You say it, Pete. Taxi driver. Taxi driver. Oh, there you go. There you go. I I will say taxi driver also. But I love taxi driver. Uh, Gone with the Wind or Major League? Major League. I I would say Gone with the Wind just for the actual cinematic, uh, the, the quality of the film. I think it's an incredibly strong film. Uh, I still have to pick Major League, though. But yeah, you, you have to I, pick I, Major League. I, I would pick Gone with the Wind if it weren't for... Uh, uh, oh, I know. I don't know, yeah. yeah. I know. Go, Gone with the Wind or The Blob? The Blob. Really? You want to do it. Come on. I'm gonna, no, I'm going to say Gone with the Wind. I I, I do think it's, it's far superior to The Blob. I mean... I know that's got all those problems with it, but there's so much quality. Swanky theme song. It does have a swanky theme song. Yes, it does. I will. I'll give it to you because I'm on the record of having picked the blob already. So I feel like my conscience is clear. (laughs) Gone with the wind. (laughs) That's one way to do it. Gone with the wind or murder by death. I'm going to do gone with the wind of this one. I just had so many problems with the everything in murder by death. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting comparison too. Uh, but I, I also, I will actually do murder by death on this one. I think it's a, I think it's an interesting comparison given how uncomfortable I was with some of the racial stereotypes, the racist stereotypes in murder by death. Um, but, uh, yeah. but I had less problem with murder by death than I did with gone with the wind. Well, we'll have I'm going to, I'm going to do this one with you. We're going to, we're going to have to fight this one out. Okay. Ready? I am one, one two, two, three, three rock paper. Okay. All right. You win this one. I win this round, Mr. Nelson. Gone with the Wind or Bull Durham? Um, Bull Durham. Really? I, t- I yeah. I mean, I, I tell you, I can I can appreciate Gone with the Wind and still not rank it higher than most of the movies on our list. Yeah, I know. I mean, I totally see where you're coming from. I'll pick Bull Durham. I'll go with Bull Durham on this one with you. Gone with the Wind or say anything. I'd say say anything. Yeah. Gone with the Wind or Labor Day. Everybody's favorite, particularly Ben Lotz. This was the hit James Vanderbeek vehicle. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. I'm picking Gone with the Wind. I'm picking Gone with the Wind. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 172 out of 190. All right. You know, it's. I think that's a fair spot for this to end up in. I think that we can acknowledge that there's a lot of cinematic, technical uh, accomplishments in the film. There's a lot of acting accomplishments in this film. I mean, it it did well at the Oscars. This is a this is a very accomplished film. It's just unfortunately just incredibly problematic, and it's just so much harder to watch now. It is. It is. I, I find it. 
really, uh, it's it's when you look at it for what it really is as a representation of the period, it is uh, it's culturally repellent. Uh, yeah. And I, I, yeah, have a tough time. I, I had a tough time, uh, you know, having civil conversations with my great grandmother. May she rest in peace for very similar reasons. Uh, yeah. So, you know. I, I hear you. I she ranked pretty low on my flick chart list of grandmothers. On that note, gramchart.com. See if your your list of favorite grandmothers <laughs> lines up with my list of favorite grandmothers. <laughs> Andy, go. <laughs> I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to go watch this in reverse and see if it has any secret messages. Uh, by CJC watches, reads, and reviews. Oh, CJC says overly long tale of a selfish, bigoted airhead. This story is offensive. Happy slaves singing in the field. Quitting time. Quitting time. A totally selfish, self-absorbed, creepy airhead, Miss Scarlet, and her complete lack of regard for any human being. This movie is a in a is offensive in its sick portrayal of the Southern pre-Civil War South. Zero stars. Oh, zero. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes, and then the interesting thing about CJC is a lot of people left comments, and CJC just continues to reply, should I even care what you think? LOL. Who cares what you think? Your opinion is worthless. <laughs> wow. Clearly, clearly a person who just wants to throw their opinion out there and not actually get into a dialogue about it. I've got one from a customer titled Sucked. Quite possibly, the, <laughs> quite possibly the most overrated movie of all time. Who wants to spend five hours listening to a bunch of spoiled racist brats? I'd rather slap Scarlet than kiss her. If this is what the old South was really like, then thank God those damn Yankees won. I'd march. I'd have marched with General Sherman any time. <laughs> wow, opinionated. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Sherman, they sure. They sure paint him as a pretty dark guy. Yes, they do. In the movie. <laughs> yes, they do. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, there you go. Thanks, Amazon. Always a gift of perspective. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to learn more about membership, head on over to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can see how you can support the show. Thanks, everybody. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.